Um, it's my pleasure uh, to introduce uh, John Brooks, who's the Chief Medical Officer in the Division of HIV-AIDS Prevention at CDC. He and I work quite closely together in a number of different uh, ways. Uh, and uh, he's been an important part of the ending the HIV epidemic work at CDC, really the main lead there. And next slide. Uh, this is just to remind us before we get started uh, that the National Ryan White Conference is going to be next uh, August with the Clinical Conference the 9th through 11th and then the National, bigger National Conference the 11th through the 14th at the Marriott Marquis in downtown DC near the Convention Center. Uh, their abstract process is now open and I encourage you all to uh, think about what kind of abstracts you want to be submitting. I am now going to turn it over uh, to John who's going to talk about what we're going to do today. Great. Thank you, Laura. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's lovely to see so many people up early here in New Orleans. Uh, thanks for coming in. <laughs> All those of you in the East Coast, we've got a little extra hour, but I know a lot of you are out West, too, and you had to get up early. So uh, as Laura mentioned, I'm the Chief Medical Officer at CDC in the Division of HIV AIDS Prevention, and for some time, about the last year and a half, been involved with helping with uh, initiate this Ending the HIV Epidemic initiative that the Department of Health and Human Services through the White House is putting forward, and we're really excited to see this moving forward uh, over the next coming uh, decade. So today we have a series of speakers that Laura mentioned all are going to talk about some projects that they did at their individual institution that related to different um, steps in the care continuum. Uh, they're listed here and uh, before I'll, I'll ask in a moment for each of them to introduce themselves by name and tell us the institution that they're from. But uh, moving forward, I just want to show you a slide that I hope all of you have seen before. But you know, repetition always helps make things sit tight in a person's head. So let me just remind you that this is a very ambitious uh, undertaking we have. We experience about 38,000 new infections annually in the United States. Our goal over the next 10 years is to reduce that by 90% to fewer than 3,000 infections annually, which would meet the WHO's definition of epidemic control, where you have one infection per 100,000 population. So if we get below 3,000, we'll reach that goal. And we intend to make the first cut down to 75% in the initial five years, which is extraordinarily ambitious. I, we can't deny that that isn't a, a very far star to reach for. However, those of you who may be familiar with the New York ending the HIV epidemic effort, if you've been following how they've been doing since 2015, they had a target of getting down by 75% in the first five years, and they are on target to reach that goal. Now, I recognize most of the country, probably all of the country, has not, is nothing like New, uh, New York. But the point here is that when the right resources are put in the right place at the right time, things can happen and we can move in that direction. How are we going to get there? Oh, Laura, you set these up beautifully. This is great. So, yeah, so diagnose. We want to diagnose everybody with HIV as soon as possible. We want to ensure that all Americans have the privilege of knowing that they have HIV infection and get the care that they deserve. We know that about 14% um, of persons living with HIV in the United States, that's a little bit over 150,000 individuals today, don't know they have this infection is damaging their immune systems, and we need to help them with that. We want to make sure that those people who are diagnosed, infected, of course, get into care as quickly as possible, and that they get their viral load suppressed as quickly as possible so they can maintain and achieve a suppressed viral load. Those persons who we test who um, are at risk but uninfected, we want to ensure that they also have uh, access to those uh, interventions that will keep them HIV uninfected. That's generally considered PrEP, but also syringe service programs. We are having a real resurgence in this country of injection drug use, unfortunately. And people who inject drugs are at high risk for HIV infection. And the population of people initiating injection drug use in the US in the last decade are not 
the kinds of people that we typically thought of reaching out to with HIV prevention efforts. They are increased, they're not totally, it's beginning to shift, but there's been a, a large number of rural persons, mostly white by geography, not by any other reason, uh, and who tend to be younger adults. And we've seen a shift in the ratio of male to female in injection drug users. It used to be a condition, condition a behavior, where there were about three men for every woman. And that's now become, it's becoming an equal opportunity condition where the ratio is closer to one to one increasingly. Um, I mention also in terms of prevention, I'm sure you're all very familiar that treatment is our most potent prevention intervention. Uh, U equals U, and we're very, that's another reason why we want to get folks suppressed. And then lastly, this is an activity that CDC does routinely, is while we're trying to uh, bring an epidemic under control, we have to be sensitive to the possibility of outbreaks and clusters of disease and intervene on those early so that they don't spread. And so we have a, a large capacity built to do detecting and responding uh, to potential clusters of infection. Okay, so what we're going to do today is talk about these three main challenges. The first is uh, how to keep people with HIV in care uh, to improve viral suppression and then likewise uh, decrease disparities. We're all probably very aware of the racial and ethnic disparities as well as economic disparities in this country among people with HIV infection. And by having a national initiative that has this ambitious goal, we hope to bring everybody into the fold of those who have access to care that deserve it. Uh, we want to keep those people newly diagnosed with HIV, um, uh, you know, keep them linked to care and enhance that engagement in care so they don't uh, fall out. We hope to make it easy for them to stay in. And then for those persons who are out of care, we need to really expand re-engagement. That's where Laura and I, our two agencies, work very closely together, and then improve retention in care for those who've been engaged. I just want to remind folks, if you haven't seen the slides circulating already, that the uh, Department of Health and Human Services has this new initiative, Ready, Set, Prep, to provide uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis to uninsured Americans. This is the information on about how to get it. You can either go to the website, getyourprep.com, or call this phone number. Let me just say that um, if you go to the website, if, from the, on the patient portal side, but I think it's also on the provider portal side, you have to enter some demographic information about the person. In some cases, that you may not know that information, the person's address, their birthday, social security number. If that's the case, call the phone number because they can often work with you to determine eligibility even if some of that information is lacking. Um, and I guess I'll just say here that this is the, you know, we talk about the HIV continuum, and it was developed looking kind of at the right side of this diagram, but let's not forget that there's a very important part on the left side as well. You know, we have to, the left side really is the prevention cascade, and the right side is the treatment cascade, and HIV testing is right in the middle. That's where we make sure we, monitor to make sure that our prevention interventions are working and identify those people who need treatment as soon as possible and then move them forward in the cascade. And we're pretty good at some of the, it, as we get closer around the HIV diagnosis column in the middle, but out towards the edges we're not so good. I've got 15 seconds, beautiful. So these are the five steps in the cascade we are going to focus on today with the prevention, prevention the presentations that are going to be uh, given. And we'll start with test and link to care. But before we go to that, let me first ask each of the panelists if they'd be so kind as to introduce themselves, uh, share with us your name, and the institution that you're from. And let's begin with Dr. Sherman, if that's okay. Oh, press the green button at the bottom. There you Thank go. Thank you. Elizabeth Sherman, Memorial Healthcare System, Hollywood, Florida. Lorna Seabolt, Crescent Care, here in New Orleans. Deborah Morris-Harris, Prism, North Texas, Dallas, Texas. Andre Brutus, uh, 
uh, Brooklyn Plaza Medical Center, Brooklyn, New York. Paula Seal from LSU Health Sciences Center here in New Orleans. Michelle Collins, Ogle, Warren Vance Community Health Center, Henderson, North Carolina. Wow, thanks. That's great. It's, right, it's great to see the geographic diversity uh, that's represented here today. So if we, what we're going to do is have folks here at the table present from the table. They have five minutes to go through their slides. I'll pass the um, clicker over there to Dr. Sherman. And we won't take questions after each presentation. We're going to go through them all the way. Uh, Laura or I may ask a clarifying question. And then afterwards, we're going to ask you all to come and post some questions to the audience, hopefully, uh, from the audience, rather, prompted uh, by what you've hear heard here today. So uh, Dr. Sherman. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you so much to the Programming Committee for the opportunity to present. Um, and also thank you from my colleagues back home for the opportunity to present our project. So Florida, it's a state that's never in the news for anything good. And when it comes to HIV, it's the same news. So you know, Florida is always one of the top ranked states uh, on the short list of states with both HIV prevalence and new HIV diagnoses. And what's pulling our state forward is the Fort Lauderdale Metropolitan Statistical Area, which is located in Broward County. My healthcare system, the Memorial Healthcare System, is the public healthcare system of South Broward County, and it's a very robust network of five hospitals, nine primary care clinics, and various other healthcare facilities. We implemented a two-pronged approach to HIV testing um, that includes both opt-out fourth-generation HIV testing for all patients seen in the emergency department of our flagship hospital, Memorial Regional Hospital in Hollywood. So this is a screenshot of EPIC. There's a script that the nurse reads to every single patient. As part of hospital policy today, an HIV test will be included as part of your blood test unless you decline. And the nurse has three choices, yes, order test, no patient refused, or HIV testing not appropriate. The second prong is something that we've been doing for 10 years, which is point of care testing for patients seen in our primary care clinics, also aboard our adult mobile health center that makes scheduled stops at community centers, homeless shelters, halfway houses, churches, outpatient substance abuse rehabilitation centers, et cetera. Our ED testing program is funded by Gilead Sciences Focus Program, and our uh, point of care tests are provided by the Florida Department of Health. So let's take a look at the results over a one-year time period, representing the first year of our opt-out testing in the ED. So in this one year, we tested 22,000 patients in the ED. We found 121 positives. Importantly, 83 of these patients were actually previously diagnosed, and a majority of them were not engaged in care. We had 38 new diagnoses, and of the 121 positives, we linked or re-engaged 104 of them in care. For our point of care testing, we conducted 11,000 tests. We had 31 positives, and all but one of those patients were linked to care. So this sounds really great, like we should, <coughs> excuse me, all join hands and sing Kumbaya, but now I'm gonna air our dirty laundry when I tell you our <laughs> lessons learned. So number one, we have a very high turnover rate in our ED. So we're constantly training and retraining and retraining our frontline ED staff about the test, the importance of the test, why they should read the script, and how to interpret the test results. 
Secondly, but perhaps, perhaps most importantly, stigma is alive and real in the South. Can you believe that? I was actually surprised, really, at, the epi at one of the epicenters of the HIV epidemic in this country, how real stigma is on the part of the patient and the provider. Remember, we had 83 patients who were previously diagnosed, but they did not disclose their status to us until we yielded these test results. And on the part of the provider, actually, that emergency department had 100,000 and patients that came through it in that one year time period, yet that script was only answered half the time, meaning that we have nurses that just completely refuse to say the word HIV. Our point of care tests, um, our, our most important lessons learned is that testing in the primary care clinics can impact patient throughput time, and this is a big deal for those clinics, because now here comes the tester with their 15-minute test kit. And also, and this is kind of a good thing, our, our um, full-time uh, point of care testers aren't doing as many tests in the primary care clinics anymore, because we've done a very good job of training our primary care providers to routinize HIV testing as part of routine care for their patients. But where they still have a very big impact is on that adult mobile health center and at various community events. So moving forward, what do we plan to do? We're going to expand <coughs> our ED testing to a second emergency department within our healthcare system in, in next year. And for our point of care testing, we're gonna continue doing testing, particularly on the adult mobile health center and in the community. And if I leave you with one last piece of advice, <coughs> it's that if you test them, you will find them. Because they're out there, and many of them know who they are, they're just waiting on you to bring them into care. Thank you. All right, thank you. So next we're going to hear uh, some presentations about rapid start, people diagnosed and getting them initiated on ART right away. And if you want to go ahead and just proceed to the next slide, because you have the clicker. I have the clicker. Why don't you go ahead and introduce Excellent. yourself and your title. I'm Lorna Siebold. I'm representing uh, Crescent Care and our rapid start program, and I'm representing a lot of people who uh, pioneered this project and implemented it, as well as all of our providers who are seeing um, patients every day who are coming in as part of Rapid Start, Test and Treat. I know people call it different things. Um, what we call it is the Crescent Care Start Initiative, and I'm gonna show you um, some data comparing the Start Initiative to something we call Early Intervention Services. Um, so Crescent Care is a federally qualified health center here in New Orleans, uh, and I'd also like to acknowledge uh, how lucky we are to have a very strong partnership with our Ryan White Part A program, the Office of Health Policy and AIDS Funding here in the New Orleans um, EMA, uh, who uh, has been a very strong partner and enabled this project to move forward. So we have two arms here, the Crescent Care Start Initiative, which is patients who are newly diagnosed with HIV and they're seen by a provider within 72 hours. We try to do it same day, but this is defined as 72 hours and at that visit, they're provided 30 days of antiretrovirals. The other arm is called Early Intervention Services and this is a group who are under the same protocol, but they came into the clinic more than 72 hours after their diagnosis. And you can see there's a, quite a wide range. There are some people who just miss that 72-hour cutoff because of mm -hmm. scheduling or holidays or weekends, and then there are some people, as all of you know, out there in the community who have been diagnosed for many years but have never been on medication. So 
The medical provider visit can be very brief and very focused. I know we've heard a lot about um, how hard this might be, but really for that initial visit, it can be very focused. Um, talking about HIV with the patient, and as, as you know, some patients come in with a lot of knowledge and some patients come in with very little knowledge. Um, making sure we've addressed any comorbidities, especially for some of those people who, who, have, uh, who were diagnosed many years ago but never um, linked or engaged in care and started on medications. They may have some significant comorbidities that need to be addressed um, during their physical exam. We do have an option not to treat, although that um, doesn't happen very often, and an option for different medications if there's any suspected resistance. Um, our uh, protocol calls for um, TAF, FTC, and dolutegravir, so it's two pills once a day, and we give that first dose in clinic. We are um, also fortunate here in New Orleans that with Medicaid expansion, many patients come to us already with the ability to access medication from our partner pharmacy in the same building, or if they don't have any, um, if they don't have, currently have insurance through the Part A program, we can give them that first month of medication, and we can do that hand-holding and give them that first dose in clinic. Um, we try to get them enrolled in, um, get their Ryan White paperwork done and enrolled in an insurance program if they need that on the same day. They go to the lab after that visit, um, and we have case managers on site who can help them with any um, urgent needs that need to be um, handled that day. So the, the, um, the data we're looking at, it's, uh, the, it's a little bit more updated in the um, summary that you're going to get um, in the syllabus um, because this is an ongoing project. We're looking at data um, from December 2016 through March or through May of 2018, so about a year and a half, with a year and a half to three years of follow-up. Um, you can see the median time um, to viral suppression is less than a month um, in, both, in both groups, and the majority of the patients are in the, um, the, the within 72 hours of diagnosis group. So just to talk about what the key facilitators are is making sure you have same-day appointments, having provider buy-in to get those patients seen that day, having flexible schedules, um, using a regimen that um, we feel comfortable doing before we have all the lab testing back, having the availability of medications on site, um, trying to get people enrolled in insurance as quickly as possible, um, observing the first dose and being able to ensure that they can get that um, ongoing medication. So our data show that both cohorts demonstrate that starting patients on the day of diagnosis is doable. It improves time to viral suppression. It improves viral suppression at 12 months. It improves retention and care. And survival is not something that we've shown in our in our cohorts at this point, but looking at um, the literature and international studies that survival at 12 months is better in these groups. Um, there are definitely differences between the two groups, um, and we can talk more about that later if you'd like, um, but it, engaging people who are living with HIV and making them part of the ending the epidemic um, is, is important and what this um, component of that can look like. Okay, thank you. Fantastic. I just, want to, uh, I just want to remind, we'll talk about retention and care next, and I'll remind folks, you may see uh, some staff walking up and down the aisles with cards if you want to 
take those and write down a question as you hear them. They were turning over a lot of really great information. I'm certainly getting a lot of questions in my own mind. And thank you guys for keeping to five minutes so that we'll have time to, so that the, the audience will be able to get all their uh, questions answered. Um, next, uh, let's move on to uh, Dr. Brutus. Yes, I'm Andre Brutus. I'm the medical director of the Rising Heights Program, which is the HIV clinic at Brooklyn Medical Plaza. The, uh, in 2018, we noted that our viral load suppression among new patients had dropped to 15% from the previous year in 2000, of 2017. So we designed uh, a, a, a project where we would, we, uh, would seek to increase viral load uh, uh, suppression rate among new patients. That would include patients that are newly diagnosed, patients that were out of care, patients that were uh, returning to care after a year. So the goal was to increase it by 15% by the end of 2019. So uh, our methods were data-driven. We uh, conducted monthly review of the data during our QI meetings, focusing on finding every patient whose viral load was over 200 and monitoring the viral suppression rate at every monthly visit. We, through, uh, we progenerated through the EMR, we assessed which patient missed clinic, case management appointments, which patient missed doctor's visits, and we ensure case management staff follow up patients and the pharmacy to ensure that they refill the prescription every month. So the undetectable, the undetectable project is an evidence-based HIV intervention designed to help clients achieve and maintain viral load suppression. So our clinic is funded through parts A, part C, and we also have funding uh, through, the, through the city health department and the state health department and that allow us to, to, to engage and uh, retain and provide these special services to the patients. And we focus on special patients that were uh, impacted by social determinants of health, such as homelessness, uh, poverty, substance use, marginalization due to sexual orientation, and gender identity. So our primary methods uh, focus on, to, on robust follow-up via phone calls and home visits. We did uh, motivational interviewing. We make sure that uh, we did adherence groups, uh, and many patients also had a chance to, to be involved in DOT, which was very important. But again, the most important part was the $100 gift card, that a visa card that the patient will receive every three months if the viral load remains undetectable. So looking at our results, uh, what we see in 2017, if we focus on the, on the new patients, uh, the viral suppression rate in 2017 was 65% 
among the new patients and has decreased to 50% uh, in 2018. But after we started the intervention and, uh, from, 2000, from the beginning of 2019 up to now in to November 2019, the rate has increased from 50% to 64% so far. So what we've learned, we've learned that robust follow-up via phone calls, home visits, bolsters patient adherence to medication. Financial incentives are extremely helpful as a tool in helping the provider <laughs> and staff maintain <laughs> engagement with fragile patients. And adherence groups are a useful forum in receiving feedback from patients on their adherence barriers. Monthly monitoring of viral load suppression reports provided enhanced structure for staff in using data as a reference to perform targeted outreach and engagement of fragile patients. And through the use of, of data and proven HIV intervention strategies, viral suppression among new patients increased by 14% as of November 2014. Thank you. Thank you very much. I always like when people highlight the use of data. That's excellent. Um, so viral suppression, we're going to hear from speakers now on that topic, and why don't we move on to Dr. Seal. Good morning, I'm Paula Seal from Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center, and I represent our clinic, uh, particularly uh, our, cl our project was heavily driven by patient navigation and health education, so I thank them. Um, I'm here to talk about a multidisciplinary intervention to address patients in care who are not virally suppressed. So our clinic is located at the University Medical Center in New Orleans. It's called the HIV Outpatient Program, known as HOP, and we represent and serve approximately 1,600 patients who are living in New Orleans. Um, we receive parts A and C. Uh, we provide a comprehensive interdisciplinary um, HIV primary care with wraparound services, including on-site mental health services of psychology and psychiatry, nutrition, dentistry, pharmacy, social work, and we also have patient navigation and health education. And in 2018, we had a viral suppression rate of 86%. And I should add that at the time we started this project, New Orleans um, was fourth in the nation for new diagnoses of HIV, and we were also um, identified as a fast-track city. So in order to to be included in our intervention, we identified patients who had had at least two separate HIV viral loads greater than 1,000 in the preceding six months. And our goal was to increase our HIV viral suppression from zero to 85% at one year. And we began this project in February of 2019. Okay, so we had an interdisciplinary team of patient navigators, health educators, social services, and the medical providers, and we conducted our intervention as follows. The patient navigator contacted the patient three days prior to their appointment as appointment reminder. At the medical visit with the primary care provider, the patient navigator and health educator were brought into the room for a face-to-face -face introduction to meet the patient. At that appointment with the medical provider, the health educator then scheduled an adherence appointment, which was to occur approximately one week after the medical uh, provider appointment. 
and the patient was notified and, and was aware of this appointment at that time. Then after the patient went home, approximately three to five days later, the patient navigator called the patient and made contact by phone to inquire if the patient had received their medication, if they had any problems receiving it, if they were actually taking their medication, and then to assess any motivations or barriers that the patient may be having in, in doing so. If the patient had not received their medication, the patient navigator circled back with that patient, again about three to five days later, to make sure they had received their meds. So then approximately one week after the initial medical provider appointment, the patient had an adherence appointment with the health educator. And at that, the adherence appointment was to, for adherence, obviously, and then they assisted with pill boxes or medications as well. If the patient could not physically come in for that face-to-face -face health education appointment, then the health educator made this um, adherence appointment via phone. So, at, and that circled back again to the next appointment for the patient navigation. But so continually the health educator and the patient navigator assessed any barriers that the patient may be having. Um, and so that was then forwarded to the medical provider and to the team so that they could address this and schedule additional visits um, as needed. So for our results, 54 patients, which approximated 3% of our clinic met criteria. For baseline characteristics, we should note that almost 50% had a psychiatric diagnosis, 36% had substance abuse, a little more than one-third had had at least one or more prior hospitalizations in the preceding year, and 30% expressed that they really had difficulty understanding their medication instructions and how to take their medications. In regard to demographics, 90% were African American, as composed to 76% represented in our clinic and 42% were women, as opposed to the comparison of 33% in clinic. And 61% were greater than 45 years of age, which is similar to our clinic population. So for our outcome, we had improved our viral suppression rate at six months from zero to 56%. And problems and lessons that were identified were that 33% had ongoing issues with transportation and 17% with medication acquisition. So for in our conclusions, this was a time-intensive effort, but what we found was that an interdisciplinary intervention can improve viral suppression rate in our patients who are in care but are not virally suppressed. This is an ongoing effort, and we are going to reassess our data in January of 2020. Um, and for future efforts for those patients who fell out of care, we've developed a pharmacy-driven intervention to try to get them re-engaged in care to affect the cascade for ongoing viral suppression. And we're also documenting the amount of effort for patient face-to-face -face interactions and phone time in order to assess the total effort needed in order to suppress these patients. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. And lastly, we're going to hear from uh, our colleague from North Carolina about re-engagement in care. The help of attorney. There you on. go. Um, I'm going to speak this morning. First of all, Warren Vans Community Health Center is a rural-based clinic. is a community-based clinic in North Central North Carolina. So we're in the middle of no one nowhere. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to talk about implementing tailored interventions to improve retention and viral suppression in a rural Ryan White clinic. Um, our uh, Intervention was driven around the national HIV-AIDS strategy. We implemented this program in 2014, and we looked at the four goals of the national HIV-AIDS strategy, and we decided to focus on goal two, that if we increase access to care and improve outcomes, that we would reduce new infections, we would reduce HIV-related disparities, and achieve a more coordinated national 
response. So uh, goal number two was the focus of our intervention. This is a tool that I created for the case managers to use to assess patients um, uh, who may likely fall out of care. So we have low risk, moderate risk, and high risk. And if you can appreciate, there are some bolded um, areas under each, under the moderate and high risk categories that seem to be the most consistent for people being at risk for falling out of care. Inconsistent transportation, um, decrease in food uh, stamps, which in North Carolina in 2013, the legislature decided that food was not a necessity. Um, and so people that got their food stamps decreased, we noticed some issues with adherence and um, retention. And then if you go over to high risk, in, um, invalid contact information was very consistent. And pa patients that receive ADAP, because our ADAP turnaround is really slow, they do everything by snail mail, so it's really slow to get the turnaround for ADAP. And that was also an issue. And then if you look further down, people that missed three um, medical visits in a six month period without a reason. Um, and when we did a deep dive into the reasons with stigma, fear, denial, the reasons why people didn't keep their appointments. So this is really busy, but I'll try to do a quick orientation. If you, on the left side of the slide, uh, <clears throat> shows the high risk of people that qualify for the intervention, and on the right side shows our results after intervention was implemented and showed viral suppression, and we've done this now for over five years. Um, at the start of this project, we had 282 patients that were evaluated, and if you look under each year, um, it shows you on the left side of this of the slide, it shows you how many people in the percentage of that population that were at high risk and required intervention. We also looked at the viral suppression rates in that group at the beginning of the intervention, and I had to clutch my pearls when I saw that group was 69% viral suppression. Mm -hmm. We also um, categorized our patients uh, by women, and we also, since at that time we had a small number of trans women, we included the trans and cis women together, males, and we uh, factored out our young MSMs. And then we looked overall at the disparities in our program um, by race, white, and non-white. Non-white also includes our Latino population, which is small. And if you look at the right um, on the slide, you can see for each year the viral suppression rates improved with under each um, demographic with interventions that were used for this group. Interventions that we used were social media, because remember most of these patients didn't have consistent contact, but if they're homeless or couch surfing, they have a smartphone. So we were able to uh, use various platform medias uh, and social media to connect with them. And also we provided food via the clinic food bank for patients that met the criteria for uh, being uh, not having enough food and being food insecure. Sentite. Um, also, if you look, this is a bar graph showing the same data, which was really nice for us to look at overall viral suppression. It's in the yellow in our clinic overall, and then uh, viral suppression for each group that received an intervention at 12, 24, 36, 48 months. And just as an aside, you know, for me, retention is are those same people virally suppressed over time. So we looked at the same cohort over time to ensure that they maintain viral suppression. And um, the conclusion was um, 
for us to identify patients at highest risk for not being retained into care is extremely important. Invalid contact information and food insecurity, lack of nutritional resources were high, re high reasons for people not being retained into care. And then also that we highlighted the importance of addressing the social determinants of health and that they are very important and key to retaining people in care and achieving viral suppression. Thank you. First, I really want to thank you all for staying on time. I got to say that most of the people here were like, I can't say all the work we've done in the last five years in five minutes, but they did. So thank you all for that. Um, lots of questions have come up, which uh, we knew would happen because we'd uh, asked them to keep it brief. So I'm just going to do a couple really quickly and then turn it over uh, to John. Uh, we have plenty of time. We go until 10 o'clock at the sessions. We've got 30 minutes. Um, I'm going to answer the first question, then we'll go to the mic. Um, does Ready, Set, Prep include undocumented individuals? So for Ready, Set, Prep, which is a Gilead donation to the federal government for um, uh, uninsured patients, patients, there are only three criteria. People need to be uninsured, they need to have a test showing they do not have HIV, uh, and they need to... A valid prescription. They need a valid prescription. Which can be arranged when they call Right, so those are the three things that they need to have. Um, if there's, if you go onto the website and you're trying to register someone and you don't have a social security number, you need to call the number because without the social security number, you can't go through the website. So you're going to need to call for patients that you don't have a social security number for. Wonderful job. Um, just for the rest of the folks who are here, we got a, a large number of applications for this session. Um, and what set the six apart was not just their programs, there are a lot of great submissions, but they actually had in, actually run the program and have data. And so that's kind of the differentiator that uh, put them up, because a lot of folks are starting a lot of these similar types of things. What I was hoping as well that we could do at this session is maybe very briefly, like in 60 seconds or less, it, maybe each of you could just go down the line and comment on the number one obstacle you faced in implementing it and how you overcame it. So what was the thing that as you started Rapid Start or you started your outreach and linkage to care or retention and care, whatever it was, what was the number one thing that sort of you bumped up against that you had to manage? Okay, I'll start down here. So for testing in the ED, it really was the providers um, apprehension to say the word HIV. So we have um, nurses that have said to our program coordinator, I'm not saying the word HIV, I'm not reading that script. And we have um, ED physicians who say, um, now that this test result is back and it's positive, I'm not saying the word HIV and I'm not gonna go tell that patient they have HIV. This is your program, you go tell them they have HIV. And this has nothing to do with the fact that they're busy and they have patients to see. This has to do with the fact that they just don't wanna speak that word. So, and, and this is surprising. Like I said, in, in the epicenter of the epidemic, that uh, providers are that apprehensive about saying the word. So for Rapid Start, I would say that um, initial barriers are just getting everybody on the same page and getting everybody, because there's a, there are a lot of moving parts, right? I would, I would argue that the provider piece is the easiest piece. You're seeing a patient just like you're seeing other patients. Yes, sometimes they're in the middle of a busy day and you have to work them in, 
but making sure that all of the other moving parts, the, the Ryan White paperwork, the Medicaid application, if that needs to be done, um, make, that involves a whole a variety of other people and trying to make sure that all of those people are at all of the sites where you might um, where you might be seeing these patients and making sure that everybody is committed to getting that patient through that system on the day of diagnosis. Great, thank you. One of our, one of our biggest barriers in the undetectable program was we would find patients that are qualified for the program, but due to um, the system, because some patients because of income or because they don't have Medicaid, uh, because the program was limited only to patients with Medicaid, they have private insurance, even though they need that intensive intervention, they would not be able to be part of the program due to uh, other reasons. So I think that was a ma major, major barrier for us. Thanks. Uh, for the viral suppression project, we had two big barriers. One was that we could not contact a lot of our patients, so a fair number of them had burner cell phones, and we did not have accurate contact information. And so no matter how hard we tried and a lot of effort that we spent trying to contact these patients, we could not find them. And the other is um, reliable transportation is still an ongoing issue. I mean, 50% of our patients have Medicaid, um, but we really had difficulty in um, those patients having reliable transportation to come to their appointments or to pick up their medication. Thank you. And for our project, the biggest barrier actually to overcome was to get the staff in line and to understand that when we're doing a project, we have to do every step every time. You have to continue, continually contact the patient to make sure they come in for their visits. So for, for my end, it was getting the staff online and understanding when we're implementing interventions that this is a process that we had to do consistently. Thanks. Um, I'm happy to table this question if it's more appropriate for the breakout session later. Um, but I just wanted to thank you for such a great uh, panel. It's so encouraging to see people doing projects that we're all trying to. <laughs> I know for some of us, we're at the beginning of these efforts, so it's very encouraging to see where we could be in the near future. Um, I am from St. Louis and have been part of a committee, a steering committee, to start Fast Track Cities. And I'm very sort of challenged by how to do this and where this goes. I'd be interested to, to know what some of the panelists' thoughts are about. Do you think that at this time it's more appropriate for separate entities to be doing their programs within cities um, separately in the hopes that they'll eventually come together in a more coordinated effort? Or do we see a need right now to coordinate efforts, coordinate resources, in order to be really effective in ending the HIV epidemic using models such as fast-track cities, knowing how challenging that is, right? Everybody's had a stake in their own individual program, separate grant funding. There are business models that are competing even though it should be about the patients. So what does this look like at now, a city-wide effort, and do you think that that works? So maybe some of you can, maybe some of you can comment in your own in your own jurisdictions where you're working, some of the, how to answer this question, sort of, are there efforts underway to integrate services or coordinate services based from, from your perspective of where you're coming from and how is that working? So New Orleans is also a fast track city and I can see Dr. Besh nodding her head about <laughs> coordinating services and I think that that is imperative, that we have fewer funds often 
to get more done and making sure that everybody is everybody you know in the city is working towards the same goal and is aware of what other people are doing so you're not duplicating efforts and you're really getting as much as you can out of the dollars that you're getting and trying to break down some of those silos and we know in clinical care right there's always this sort of my patients their patients where are people going and I, I think that we're fortunate here that we have um, an excellent collaboration with um, all of the Ryan White parts um, all of the funding that comes into the city and the state and um, amongst the HIV providers in the city I think there is oftentimes the attitude of as long as the patient is in care and let's try to work together to make sure that they stay in care wherever it's best for them to be, but making sure that all of these different pieces that everyone's aware. And I know Paula can speak yeah, Paula also to fast track cities. Right, no, I agree with all of that. And I think even at the state level, at the quality improvement meetings at the state level, we are all working together and have been for quite some time in trading ideas and sharing ideas and trying to build off of one another. We have a similar system in New York City, and especially looking uh, when you have patients who are lost to care and you're trying to track them down, the city will help you track them down because you don't know if they move to a different clinic, you don't know the phone number doesn't work, the, the address, but if they're getting services from the city, if they're getting any help from the city, if they're on Medicaid or they're getting food stamps, whatever, the city can still track them down and help you find these patients. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a good system that really helps mm -hmm. us track patients who are lost to care. Michelle, you know, you work in a more of a rural area. I mean, I, what, is the what are some of the challenges and successes in this respect uh, there? Well, the challenge is being rural yeah. and, um, yeah. and not, <laughs> not being able to link yourselves physically to anyone. Um, but one of the things that um, I think we've done quite well in our program, we have really wonderful relationships with Duke and with UNC and Wake County Human Services in Raleigh. And what we've done is sort of integrated ourselves into the rest of the network. So even though physically we're out there by ourselves, we're not out there um, alone in terms of resources. So we partner with um, other agencies and utilize, share resources. I've encouraged, which is really good just as an aside for our patients, it's our program is 87% um, African American. We've encouraged patients to participate in clinical trials at Duke and at UNC, and that also helps our program and it also helps the patients. So I just, the rurality is really hard, but I think in that situation, forming relationships with your partners uh, within the state, is, it's been excellent for us. Thank you. Thank you. I look, uh, we have one more, Jeannie. Hi. I have three questions. All right. Hopefully quick. Um, wonderful presentations. Thank you so much. Uh, the first question I have is about your health educator. I wanted to find, we've had trouble trying to fund a position like that, and I wanted to know what the educational uh, uh, background was of that ind individual and how you fund it. The second question was about the sustainability of providing incentives in terms of who is paying for the incentives. Um, you know, I did like a quick calculation for 250 people if you were giving them an incentive, that's $100,000. And what, do you, what are your plans for that uh, source drying up for funds for continued funding? And the third thing was the food bank that you have at your clinic, and I wanted to know how that got started, what, what, what comprises the food bank, and how, it's, uh, how, you do, 
how you uh, release the items. So first question, does somebody want to address that? Health yeah, educator. Health educator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we have one health educator who's an RN, but she practices as a health educator. Our second health educator has a master in public health. Um, and how they're funded, I'm not sure, either through the Ryan White, yes. I wasn't sure if they were partially funded through our hospital, but Ryan White. Yeah, so there are a number of questions around incentives, by the way. It wasn't just, it's both the sustainability of the incentives, are they used not just for... The sustainability of the incentive is, is, is really a challenge. Uh, uh, in our program, we got funded through a special program from the state, uh, a quality program uh, go to the district where a group of, based on quality, they, gave, they provided this money and they had renewed for two years in a row. Uh, and, but the other programs through the uh, uh, Medicaid Managed Care, many of the insurance that provide, many, uh, provide the same kind of incentive to the patients every three months. If they go to the doctor and then the virologist is undetected, they put $100 on the, on the cards. Mm -hmm. So you just have to provide the information to the insurance company. So you should con contact your insurance to see if they have this program. So we participate, we have our own program, plus many of the managed care insurance do have incentive program to, to, as an uh, as, as incentive to retain and care, to make sure the patient comes for the visit, and then they stay undetectable and they get the incentive. Hey, Jeannie, thanks for the question about the food, because it gave me the opportunity mm -hmm. to actually explain how we didn't have mm -hmm. five minutes, couldn't talk about it. Um, so I think I mentioned back in 2013, um, the legislators in North Carolina had decided that eating was not necessary, and they cut food stamp recipients' um, uh, amount of food, uh, food stamps that they got each month. They count. Uh, cut them quite a bit, and some of our patients were only getting like $11, $12, $13 a month in food stamps. And that sort of came to light. It's not because anybody came and made an issue of it, but we had patients that were previously suppressed that were no longer virally suppressed. And so when we started looking at these patients, um, I asked the case managers to find out what is going on, uh, that, that they're not virally suppressed anymore. And what happened was, of course, our patients understanding when we tell them about what they need to do, take their medications. If their medication required food and they weren't eating, they weren't taking their medication. Mm -hmm. And for many people, they weren't eating a meal a day. They were eating a meal maybe every other day. And then going to the convenience gas stations for snacks in between. Um, and so um, I didn't really know what to do about that um, at the time. Uh, but at, during a board meeting, our, you know, I was talking to our board of directors, like, we have to do something to address this, and I'm not really sure what to do, so you all need to help me decide what to do. And one of the board members suggested that we apply to be recipients of the North Carolina Food Bank. And so when I looked at the requirements, um, I said, we can do that. And so we built a little place where we could put non-perishables, and we had someone donate a refrigerator to us for refrigerated items that we could use for patient food. And we became recipients of the North Carolina Food Bank. And so we have what we call the clinic kitchen. And patients that meet the criteria to receive um, food, when they come for their visits, and if they're taking their medications, and of course I know that from you know, getting their labs, if they're doing what they're supposed to do, they know each month they can come to the clinic and get a couple bags of food. And if they have kids, they get more. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, well, I was, when I was there, responsible for going to the food bank 
and making sure that I got the right, there's no sodas, no cookies, none of that junk. Um, but we try to get the best food that we could get. I tell them, if you want to get junk, you get that on your own dime. We're not doing that. Um, and so that's sort of how that, <laughs> that's sort of how that, that came about and the patients really appreciate it. And we've been able to sustain it because we just go um, get food from the food bank. And it's really inexpensive. And we use our 340B funds to, yeah. get, to get the money for the, for the food from the food bank. There was, oh. I, I just wanted to make one more comment. Yeah. I'm sorry about that's um, okay. incentives. And this also gets back to the, to the silos and everybody working together on the fast track cities and ending the epidemic is knowing really what the resources are in your community. One thing that we have done is um, for, the, for our youth population is we've partnered with the Adolescent Trials Network at Tulane here in New Orleans. And so um, took a little work, but we have an MOU and now they're on site with us and they actually pay cash, which is very popular with the under 25 set. Yeah. So anyone who hasn't reached their 25th birthday may be eligible for one of their studies and then they coordinate their study visits with our clinical visits. They can provide transportation and cash incentives. And another program that hopefully we will have on site sometime soon is the pediatric HIV AIDS cohort study yep. um, for the uh, perinatally exposed babies trying to coordinate those um, clinical and study visits. So it's something to think about. If, if those programs are available in your community, that if you can partner with them, it may help in terms of, because we know transportation is a huge barrier yeah. and then incentives. Great, thank you. Hi, um, my name is Daryl. Um, uh, I am in Danville, Pennsylvania. I'm pretty sure most of you haven't heard of that because it's very rural. Um, so, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, so I have like quite a few sort of um, issues that I'm uh, trying to overcome right now um, as a new practicing ID doctor. Um, but I have two questions, one for Dr. Sherman and one for Dr. I believe Collins Ogle. I'm so sorry, I wear glasses for a reason. Okay, that's good, okay. So um, uh, number one, in the ED, we've actually had difficulty with the ED physicians actually HIV screening um, as you had Dr. Sherman. And um, you know, I consider myself like kindly annoying. So as soon as I sort of figured that out, um, you know, I've had multiple consultations with like the head of the ED, and we started screening more. Um, and you know, just over the last three months, we've had like 20 people diagnosed with AIDS. 50% of them um, were lost to follow up, and the other 50% were new. Um, and so we got them in the clinic and sort of got the, gotten them arranged. But it's been slowly, slowly declining as well because we do have a high turnover. So what sort of modalities did you do to sort of re-educate them over and over again? Like what were the sort of processes that you did to start that? You're talking about, um, it was, it's, hard, it's a little hard to hear up in here the with ED. the echo. So in, in the, the, in the ED, how did yeah. you? Uh, when you had this high turnover, how did you ensure that they were all educated? How did you do that? Yeah. Kind of get in front of them. Right. Sure we have um, we have a program coordinator that attends every single meeting, every <laughs> single huddle, and um, we also have a medical assistant that we call a linkage specialist, um, and she watches the board. And that, that's her job is watch the board in the EDC when patients come in and go and harass the nurse and say, "Did you ask that question?" Make sure that they're asking the question. So it, it takes. Um, <laughs> Now having, I know why they're not asking. Yeah. <laughs> so it takes having these piranhas in the ED constantly in the face of the providers. And then we also have um, a physician champion, uh, the director of the ED, who's on board and 
tries to make sure that all of his staff understand the importance and that they're uh, asking patients to be screened. I mean, oh, I don't really have that much staff on front. Like, I am the champion for the most part. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, maybe if I get more, more staff, we can okay. sort of Great. do that. Um, and then in addition, um, uh, we also have a very slow sort of um, ADEP sign-up rate, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we take care of like a relatively large HIV population over mm -hmm. a, a very large uh, area, uh, multiple counties, to be sure. honest, all the way from State College to Scranton, if you know anything about Pennsylvania, okay. it's pretty large. Um, my issue is um, most of the case managers that I'm associated with um, in the small towns, like the people know who they are, so they can't meet the patients at their houses. They can't meet them at work or anything like yeah, that. Sure. So I have like little places that they go, like a church. Like I'm really good friends with a preacher who allows me to use their church to sign up patients um, and things like that. What are some of the ways that you sort of uh, uh, overcame those ADAP sign up issues? Because mm -hmm. right now it's like it takes about like a month or sometimes two months to get them signed up. Yeah, so that's a great question. Thank you for that. I think I understood most of it. It was around case management and ADAP. Mm -hmm. um, how do we do that? So one thing but I, is... I think part of it, too, because it is hard to hear up here, is that patients in rural areas, the case managers can't come to their houses because the case managers are known entities. So yeah. how do you manage all of that as well? That's right. Um, first, I want to say before I forget, um, I actually really... we're Because we're doing all of these things, is we have best support and leadership and Dr. Cheever uh -huh. and her son Ryan White and I just want everybody to know that we're doing what we do because of them and they support us and they hear us and I just want to give a shout out because we couldn't do this without them. Yeah. Um, Good job. So being, being in a rural community is tough. It's really tough with stigma and people knowing who and everybody grew up with somebody's mm -hmm. everybody know Junebug and Betsy and all them. And so one of the things that, we, that we're trying to do is uplift and educate everyone. And so we are really working to overcome stigma by saying, um, first of all, our case management is in-house, which again, that's why I appreciate Ryan White. We're able to house our case management. The people that, this is the plus, the, our case managers are from the community. They live in the community. They know the people in the community. And our case managers are trusted people. And so what we've encouraged patients and our case managers to do is they need to come to the clinic. You need to come to the clinic. Our clinic doesn't have a big HIV sign out front. It's actually, we're in a, within a medical building, so you wouldn't even know what we're there for unless yeah. you know what we're there for. And so we're really trying to uplift everyone and educate everyone um, to kind of help deal with stigma. So it, it works. We have really great case managers. Our case managers are wonderful people. So, you know, that's hard, um, but, but, you know, but you can't baby it and say, we're gonna come, we're gonna meet you in the corner of the library or anything, okay. no. You're gonna come to the clinic and we're gonna over, try to overcome that by educating everyone and making our clinic very neutral. When you come in, you don't know what anybody's there for. We have all kinds of information out in the waiting area. It looks like a living room actually, and that was by design from the patients. They kind of let us know how they wanted our waiting area to look, we have some sofas, some lamps, you know, television. It really looks nice and relaxing when you come in there and that was by design from our patients. So we're doing what we can do to try to help our patients overcome the stigma. In terms of the ADAP, um, that requires a lot of advocacy and it made me think about, because Dr. Cheever knows we have been advocating and having issues trying to push our state 
towards you know getting rid of the snail mail way for for doing ADAP because it interferes with our ability to do rapid start and mm -hmm. so we can't um, in those patients so that requires advocacy and pulling your people together that you can to work with the folks at the state level mm -hmm. to to help to help under and use you know use these programs and use the ETE as a way to kind of push them forward to know that we you know rapid start is part of ETE so Okay. Yeah, Thank you. Use your voice. Great. So uh, we only have 15 minutes left. We've got a lot of people that want to say things. I'm going to ask one quick question since we got it a bunch of different times, uh, which is how did you fund the antiretrovirals for rapid start? Just quick answers, if you can, on how you manage that. So we partnered with the Ryan White Part A program. So for people who come in and have insurance and have access to medications, whether it's through Medicaid or through commercial insurance. We have copay cards for people with commercial insurance. For people who come in and on that day have no insurance, um, we try to get them to an eligibility specialist to get their served on that day, but the Part A program has agreed to give us 30 days to get that paperwork done. And we did change the policy within Ryan White to help fix some of the problems that we heard from Michelle and other people, that, that Part Bs can sort of determine rapid eligibility where you say someone that they will start serving you, but then they have some period of time by which they need to demonstrate, and the state decides what that period is, that the patient is in fact eligible. So people don't necessarily show up at the, even at the pharmacy for their refill and find out they didn't do re recertification and are out that day, that they can, they can manage that at some risk to the state in terms of making sure that person is shown be eligible, but we did change that for that reason. It's at the state level, it's the way Brian White works. The states and cities get to sort of decide, not the federal government. So that is advocacy at the state level. Hello, good morning. My name is Makeda Kamara. I work in uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, St. Croix, the Big Island. And I, I basically want to just bring awareness to everyone here. We just can't do rapid start in many of the colonies and territories or associated states, whatever you choose to call it, but they're colonies, because um, we don't have access to the Affordable Care Act. We're underfunded, understaffed, underpaid, and we can go to fight wars, but we cannot vote and have any control over the lives or the health of the people that we serve. So it's very difficult to attract staff. It's very difficult to hire. Um, many of our providers, myself included, and nurses or whatever allied workers we have, many haven't even had a pay increase in about 10, 15 years. Uh, doing rapid start is, would be wonderful, but it's very difficult. So in addition to the other issues that we face in terms of the social determinant of health being black, brown, Asian, because they're the Mariana Islands, Solomon Islands, Guam, they all have the same issues that we have. Um, I would like to increase awareness amongst those of us here so that you can also advocate for more access to many of the services you have, even in rural areas, that many people who are considered citizens of the United States do not have. And so many of these things, I come here, I'm happy, I go home, but I can't do anything. My hands are strapped because we simply have zero access. I don't know what we would do without ADAP as slow as it is, or without Ryan White Part B, or without being a close-knit community where we can do certain kinds of things because we're just close, we're small, which has its problems because everybody knows everybody, so everybody knows everybody's business. And 
small. We're talking about 50,000, 60,000 people on St. Croix, less on St. John, less on St. Thomas. Water Island is just insignificant. But it's important. I just want to increase awareness because my hands are strapped. Yeah. So since you work at the federal level, please put a word in for us. We're strapped. We're in trouble. Yeah. And subsequent yeah. to the hurricanes, things have gotten worse. We are on life support, literally. I gave care for over two years in a van. Mm. And the hurricanes, Katrina, Miami um, Katrina, I'm here, I'm saying, Ir Maria, we call it, it, they're gone, but the results are still okay. there. And um, so I just, I'm using this platform to ask for your help, ask for your assistance. Um, sometimes my patients have to wait three, four months before I can even get them started, even though I want to. The other day I did something I shouldn't do, I probably shouldn't say it publicly, I used my own insurance to start somebody right away, because it was either that or see this person die. So um, thank you and help us. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Good morning. Uh, my name is Judy Parra. I'm a family physician in the Bronx, and I'm also involved in uh, resident education. Uh, as someone who was early in my career, this is very exciting to learn about the, the different initiatives. And I heard a lot about health work, um, workforce development, and training of physicians in the ER and training in different other environments. So my question is to both the panelists and the moderators. Part of ending the epidemic is also understanding that we have a critical shortage of clinicians that deliver HIV care, and this is gonna be more significant over the next five to 10 years. So I would like to know what um, initiatives you have at your own clinics to train more primary care-based uh, uh, clinicians to deliver HIV care, and also to our moderators, what fundings or grants and resources are there so that we can train more clinicians to do this work because it's not enough of us to really address it. So I can start and then we'll pass it along. Um, so uh, in this new initiative, I think it's really clear to all of us that if we actually bring 400,000 people into care, we currently have about 600,000 in care in this country, that we're going to need to significantly increase our, our clinic sites so um, in clinical capacity. So there are several things that I think we're looking at. First is obviously the AIDS education and training centers exist. They've had a very modest small budget for many, many years. We've been able to leverage that a little bit through the national curriculum, which is out of the University of Washington. Um, David Spock has really been the, the sort of the genius behind that over the years, so that we're really trying to leverage that into, uh, into family medicine programs and other programs, uh, nurse practitioner programs, PA programs, to get people trained up in HIV as one small step. The other thing is to better engage community health centers. A lot of community health, some community health centers have done HIV for years, many of you are from community health centers, a tremendous job. Other community health centers have never wanted to do HIV, have never been willing to. They will be getting funding through this initiative to do PrEP, and so as a part of that is to really try to build um, the sort of the cultural humility around uh, HIV and dealing with people from marginalized populations, LGBTQ and other populations in community health centers and to really try to, to, to move that along more aggressively than we have in the past. So that's, those are just a couple of the things that we're talking about doing. Obviously in the Ryan White program, we've worked with multidisciplinary teams for a long, long time. So it's not all about physicians and we know that. It's about 
uh, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses, better leveraging community health workers and better leveraging that team uh, to get the work done. But you're absolutely right. That's going to be, uh, I sort of see it as potentially the Achilles heel of this whole thing yeah. if we can't really expand the willingness of people. And I, I was really upset to hear about the ER in yeah. South Florida. Um, it's going to be the Achilles heel if we can't get people to be uh, more willing to treat people with HIV and to really be accepting and welcoming of the populations. Any of you want to say from your perspective of where you sit? Um, just to reiterate, with practice transformation with the AETC, we are working with that. But also, we're, we're in an academic medical center, and so we have actually collaborated with the family practice program and having their residents rotate through with us. And so we're doing ongoing education, hoping that, that we can facilitate and spread that out. I just would add that we had a program in our emergency room where we were trying to test, um, and we ran into very similar barriers, whereas if that, if, we did, if our nurse was not there to remind the providers to test, they were not testing. So even in, the, in our city, we have the same exact thing. All right, let's take over here. Just a quick question and quick answer, so we're running um, low on time here. Okay, so the, it's not really quick. The, it, the issue is um, maintaining engagement of undocumented individuals with HIV. Mm -hmm. So it, we're in a sanctuary city. About 20% of our Hispanic patients are undocumented. Uh, we've reassured them that they are sort of safe within the health system, but they're concerned about deportation and loss of access to antiretrovirals. Um, are there any recommendations? Do we know if people, any, with, anyone with HIV has been deported? And is there anything that we as a community can do? Yeah, so that's uh, obviously the environment for people um, uh, that aren't documented is very tough right now um, in terms of that feeling insecure and for a lot of different reasons uh, from the federal government perspective. Um, in terms of the Ryan White program, the program's always been a public health program and it's always been based in that public health response. So it hasn't been dependent on having uh, citizenship. That's never been a, one of the factors in Ryan White eligibility. That doesn't answer those bigger questions where we know that we have ex examples of people um, outside of uh, health clinics and other places looking for people that aren't documented. So I do not have a good answer to that. Yeah, and Laura, am I, am I mistaken or is, I believe that uh, medical centers under uh, HRSA have or excluded from public charge rules as they exist present. Right. So the pu public charge, which is if you use uh, Medicaid, for example, it'll impact your ability to get, uh, for people that are here legally, to, to then go on and get um, citizenship in the future. Um, our Ryan White programs are not considered part of that public charge. It's a separate program, grant program. Right. So they're not at risk of being accused of public charge if they come in to get care. Right. Yeah. Hi, question for Dr. Cheever. About the, it's a, a workforce issue. I give a lot of lectures to students um, in hopes of encouraging them to enter H, the HIV field in the workforce, but one of the things I hear consistently is, I don't want to be, I don't want to be insulting, the students will say, but what, is, what kind of pay can they expect? And people come out of school with $100,000, $200,000 in debt, and I'm wondering whether using National Health Service Corps and expanding that to specifically for people who go into HIV medicine, get credentialed, and then make a commitment would, could address that workforce issue. Yeah, that's a great yeah, that's point, great. Yeah. 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 So um, I think the National Health Service Corps has actually run out of HRSA as well. Yeah. So we have been very um, supportive of trying to move in that direction. The statute, the law around National Health Service Corps, people that are going to get loan repayment or um, scholarships through the National Service Corps have to agree to sort of see everyone. So you can't be an HIV specialty practice. If you're within a community health center, then you could 
get National Health Service Corps repayment. And because of the prohibition in the law, or the way the law is written, that it doesn't work for like a lot of Part C specific programs, um, there have been some uh, bills in Congress to address it specifically, but none of those have moved all the way through. So it really is, if you're going to be HIV specific about it, it's a statutory change. And so that is something you'd have to work with your congressional representatives around. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we have a couple of questions folks have written in. I want to make sure they have the opportunity to uh, get so addressed. Quick, quick so answer, we're going to see for bullet answers if you don't mind. And Lorna, here, um, this may be something you can answer. A lot of patients come in newly diagnosed for rapid start who also are on medication-assisted therapy for opioid use disorder. Can you administer MAT together with antiretrovirals as part of rapid start? Yes. Yes, <laughs> just if you need to know. Um, and uh, Andre, how did you get permission to do home visits? Up to the microphone if you don't mind, thanks. Okay, so you have to get permission from the patients. Uh, we have patient navigators to our part A that provide home visits and that can also do uh, DOT. So for the part C, we cannot do home visits, but with the part A, we have navigators that can perform home visits as long as the patient is willing. So it's done. Great. Yeah. And Elizabeth, question for you. Someone asked, um, were there any opt-out patients who shouldn't have opted out? I mean, that's a great question. We, we don't know yet. We, you know, this is the first year of our program, and we haven't gone back yet to kind of sort through all of the data to figure that out. And just one other follow-up. Someone heard that uh, you might, might have said testing was inappropriate in some circumstances. I'm not sure that's exactly what you meant, but could you elaborate? Oh, right. That was one of the answer choices um, in EPIC that the nurse could select. And so um, our testing program, in, in order to be eligible to get the test in the ED, you have to be between 18 and 75 years of age. You have to not have had a previous HIV test in the past year. You have to not have had uh, altered mental status. I think those are the only um, exclusion criteria, and so that's when it would be inappropriate. Okay, great. Well, this has been a terrific session. Thank you, Laura, for pulling this together and letting me uh, walk people through it. It's great. I've learned a lot, too, and I don't have the opportunity to interface with you guys as much as I do my other. So thank you. Let's thank the panel.